On late Friday, September 9th, the nation's largest railroads began warning major shippers that they are declaring an embargo on certain types of shipments five days in advance of the end of the federally mandated cooling off period at 12 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, September 16th. They further advise that all rail shippers should be blocked from making any rail shipments well in advance of next Friday's deadline for a lockout or strike. This completely unnecessary attack on rail shippers by these highly profitable Class I railroads is no more than corporate extortion. Our unions remain at the bargaining table and have given the rail carriers proposal that we would be willing to submit to our members for ratification. But as the rail carriers refused to reach an acceptable agreement, in fact, it was abundantly clear from our negotiations over the past few days that railroads show no intentions of reaching an agreement with our unions. But they cannot legally lock out our members to the end of the cooling off period. Instead, they are locking out their customers beginning on Monday and further harming the supply chain in an effort to provoke congressional action. The railroads are using shippers, consumers, and the supply chain of our nation as pawns in an effort to get our unions to cave and to their contract demands knowing that our members would never accept them. Our unions will not cave into these scare tactics. Congress must not cave into what can only be described as corporate terrorism. Rather than gridlock the supply chain by denying shipments and potentially locking our members out next Friday, the railroads should work towards a fair settlement that our members, their employees, would ratify. For that to happen, we must make improvements to the working conditions that have been on the bargaining table since negotiations began. For that to happen, we must make improvements to the working conditions that have been on the bargaining table since negotiations began. Penalizing engineers and contractors for getting sick or going to a doctor's visit with termination must be stopped as part of the contract settlement. Let us repeat that our members are being terminated for getting sick or for attending routine medical visits as we crawl our way out of a worldwide pandemic. No working class American should be treated this level of harassment in the workplace for simply becoming ill or going to a routine medical visit. Sadly, the Presidential Emergency Board recommendation got it wrong on this issue. As we said from the day that they were implemented, these policies are destroying the lives of our members who are the backbone of the railroad industry. These employment policies have forced thousands of employees out of the industry and make it all but impossible to recruit new workers. With understaffed operation, these railroads abuse their best customers by refusing to provide deliveries consistent with their legal obligations. These self-appointed titans of industry complain constantly about government regulation and interference, except now when it comes to breaking the backs of their employees. It's time for the federal government to tell the CEOs who are running the nation's railroads into the ground that enough is enough. Congress should stay out of the rail dispute and tell the railroads to do what other businesses, other business leaders do. Sit down and bargain a contract that your employees will accept.
Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 192 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, not joined by Ed, maybe hopefully later in the episode, but Ed's landlord fucked up his uh, router somehow. And so Ed is, you know, we are routinely being sabotaged by our enemies. And yet in return, we never sabotage our enemies. And so this is just a lesson here on praxis, right? Like what comes around goes around. So hopefully Ed joins us later. But we are, of course, joined by producer Jeremy, as usual. We, we are very happy to be joined by the master of PowerPoints over at the wonderful podcast, Well, There's Your Problem, which gets into all things engineering disasters. And uh, Justin Rosniak is here to talk with us about um, a, a, a silent engineering disaster that is continually happening uh, and the worker responds to it. So, Justin, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, 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 it's unfortunate we have once again been um, sabotaged by the landlord's scourge, but uh, hopefully one day someone's going to come and do something about that, you know? Uh, mm, I become more and more Maoist with every passing day. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, so the the occasion for you coming on, Justin, is actually a very well-timed tweet. <laughs> you were saying, somebody let me on your podcast to talk about the, the freight rail uh, strike that's about to happen or that's been brewing for a long time. A number of people... Uh, thankfully tagged uh, TMK in that and said, TMK is where you need to go to talk about it. And obviously, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, back in the city skylines days. And so I jumped at the case uh, to get you on, but also to talk about something that I must admit I didn't really know a whole lot about. I mean, obviously, as a communist, I'm all about the rails. Give me more trains uh, all every day, all day. Um, but I don't honestly pay a whole lot of attention to the industry itself. Got a lot of other things uh, capturing my eye. But I had no idea, reading into this in preparation for the episode, I had no idea just the absolute... Uh, disastrous state of things over at the rail industry, and particularly freight rail, uh, essentially from top to bottom. It's it, it it is an interesting thing because if you look at like the the freight rail industry in particular, lots of people have lots of uh, opinions about passenger rail. You know why? Because you ride the train, you 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 get to experience it. Freight rail, not so much. It's very very opaque, right? And it's kind of like so opaque that I don't know it. it there, there's an ongoing problem at the Surface Transportation Board right now where Amtrak's trying to run a new train to uh, Mobile from New Orleans. And um, when they asked CSX, how many trains do you run on this line? CSX, CSX was like, they told both Amtrak and the regulators, oh, that's a trade secret. Um, <laughs> you, you cannot learn any information about this industry no matter how hard you try. <laughs> Uh, and, I mean, and it's we're all we're all like if you're if you're an enthusiast about the freight rail industry or if you're an academic or if you're a worker or if you're anything you're it's you're all different blind men feeling different parts of the elephant you know right i mean this is so classic though like trying to study any industry that it's because intellectual property is the regime that rules all of us it's not just property it's now this is the 21st century baby it's all about that intellectual property which just yes. means that 
corporate trade secret laws are iron tight and upheld. I mean, to the point where like, you know, industries I study, like the data broker industry, I remember Congress a few years ago tried to do a big uh, congressional inquiry into just like shining some light on the industry. And, you know, they sent request for information to a number of the big data brokers uh, and a number of them in response said no <laughs> you know? and, then, and then congress was just like all right well we tried and, and and it just seems like that is the way that pretty much every uh corporation is run now especially ones that i mean honestly i think if you talk to the normal person like average joe on the street or average jill on the street like they would not honestly know that freight rail was so was still so crucial that so much of it ran uh, and that it was like, you know, the logistical backbone of this country. It's something about it seems very quaint. And, and, and we're constantly, if you do know anything about it, you're, you're constantly propagandized. The American freight railroads are the best in the world. And you can look at two or three statistics like uh, ton miles transported, like, um, you know, uh, Mostly just ton miles transported, ton of freight over a mile, and it's like, yeah, wow, they move a lot of stuff. And then you, 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 if you dig anything deeper than that, it's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff they've just completely ceded to trucking. Um, there's a lot of stuff that like they don't move very effectively. There's a lot of people who will not touch the railroads because they're so bad at moving anything that's time sensitive. It, and 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 it's just it's it's so bad it's really bad <laughs> <laughs> the freight rail is really now tr trying to make themselves known they're trying to step out into the light at least in the sense of like you know showing publicly how important they are because there is the threat of a strike by you know two of the largest unions the, the two unions that represent uh, the vast majority, or, or the majority, I think, not the vast majority, but I think a simple majority of railroad workers. Um, it's, uh, was it the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, uh, which is affiliated with the Teamsters, um, and then also Smart TD, which is sheet metal, air, rail, transportation, uh, transport de uh, department or division. So these two unions are threatening to strike as soon as uh, Monday, I believe. Or no, not Monday, the 16th, Friday. Um, yeah. Friday. So we are recording this, just to put a timestamp on it, we're recording this on the 12th of September, Monday. So a lot of stuff is happening very fast. So if things happen and it's like, why haven't they talked about that? It's because they haven't happened when we talked about it. But yeah, so midnight on Friday is, the, uh, is when the unions are legally allowed to strike after they had uh, a 60-day cooling-off period uh, imposed on them by, uh, I believe, the Presidential Emergency Board, which was a, um, a three-person board overseeing the uh, dispute between the, rail, the freight rail uh, industry and the worker, uh, the trade unions, um, uh, appointed by Biden to, to oversee this. So, Potentially Friday, we might have uh, a national stoppage uh, of freight rail. And leading up to that, obviously, there's been a lot of news about this in places like Bloomberg, uh, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, like, you know, these kinds of places. And a lot of them are quoting 
you know, oftentimes first sentence, uh, you know, and very often throughout the article, uh, a big statement put out by the Association of American Railroads, which is the trade industry group that represents the bosses and, ma and owners of the major freight uh, 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 train companies. And the big headline figure for this is a nationwide freight railroad shutdown could cost $2 billion a day. And then they put out a bunch of uh, infographics essentially talking about all, like, all of the things that they ship. Uh, I, I want to actually read one of them because it, it's really... Uh, representative of the kind of like scare tactics that they're trying to do and be like, look, we're so important and you can't ignore us now because, you know, the workers are threatening this uh, crucial industry. So they say, uh, quote, 6,300 rail, rail cars of food and farm products are uh, transported on our railways, right? A single loaded rail car contains enough wheat for 260,000 loaves of bread. Rail also transports one-third of U.S. grain exports, which are especially important today considering global grain disruptions caused by the war in Ukraine. So this is Incredible. the kind of like scare Incredible. tactics that they're rolling out <laughs> to be like, uh, they are literally saying like, do you, oh, oh, so these workers by threatening the strike, they don't care about the war in Ukraine. And they also want people to starve all around the world. Huh? Yes. Very interesting. And they're good for wanting that. That's my opinion. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I will say $2 billion a day sounds like a low ball. Cause uh, if, if this strike really does go through, uh, it may get ugly pretty quickly, but We'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so walk us through, like, what is actually going on with this big dispute um, and the kind of, like, immediate uh, lead-up and potential scenarios uh, coming our, from our it. Sort of, our sort of immediate lead-up is um, recently a number of railroads, specifically Burlington Northern Santa Fe, which is the one that Warren Buffett owns, have been going for these more and more draconian attendance policies, right? Um, and due to a, a series of factors, railroad workers have had more and more unpredictable schedules for a long time now, um, you know, due to stuff like, well, one specific thing called precision scheduled railroading, which I think we'll get to later in the podcast. But, you know, you, you're, you have these situations where you could be called up at any time. At any time, they could call you up at one in the morning. Um, well, obviously they can only call you up at one in the morning at one in the morning, uh, and then say, <laughs> you, you have to take this train 200 miles, uh, right now, get dressed, come down to the, come down to the yard, pick up this train. And then, you know, then, then the, uh, they send you out of the yard and they keep you at a red signal for six hours doing nothing. But, uh, <laughs> so you, you have, uh, you, you have these attendance policies, you have discipline policies, you have all this stuff. It's, it's not so much, it's interesting because it's not so much about pay. It's about all this stuff where they're trying to turn railroad workers into, you know, the sort of the, the sort of, they, they give them the scheduling system that the service industry has been dealing with for a long, mm -hmm. long time. You know, where it's just like your schedule is completely arbitrary. You have no confirmed time off. Uh, people can't, like, go visit the doctor already. People can't attend their family's funerals. Uh, if your Railroad workers are just, you, you have to be on call at all times right now. 
Um, that's like one of the main asks. There's also some health insurance stuff. There's also, there is a pay aspect to this, but like the fact that you can't live your life as a railroad worker is a big part of it. Yeah. It's all this quality of life stuff. And you're, you're told like everything you're describing, you know, it has, uh, you know, historical connections and we'll get into this to the kind of just in time manufacturing, yeah. you know, Toyotaism, the kind, uh, but, but here, you know, crucially the main commodity, uh, is the labor power of the engineers and conductors. And so that's the commodity that you need to have just in time control over. Uh, and, and I think you're exactly right to draw connections to the service industry. It's the kind of, you know, broader gigification of everything, right? Like, I can only imagine that some uh, tech startup is, you know, pitching a uh, Uber but for conductors uh, startup, right? Where it's like, why are you hiring these people anyways? Um, the best way to get them off your books and break the unions uh, is to just have, uh, you know, everybody be a private contractor gig worker that signs up for the uh, the conductor Uber app. Uh, and then and then you can have that real time control uh, and demand over your labor power. There are at least two companies right now trying to market autonomous uh, power packs. You can stick to rail cars and just drive them around without a engineer or conductor. Now, the thing is, they don't exist and they don't work, but um, they are marketing it, <laughs> which is a scare tactic, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they've already got uh, driverless passenger trains and things like that, so why not, you know? I mean, this is the innovation, you know, the the, the mother of necessity, right? And uh, yes. uh, what what's more necessary than feeding capital's imperatives and interest? Well, the issue with the driverless passenger trains is that they work. You, 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 you don't you don't want that. You you don't want technology that works. <laughs> no, instead we're going to get a uh, driverless freight rail train um, brought yeah. to us by Elon Musk and Tesla. Ah, uh, we can get to that later if you want. Um, <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So it boils down to a lot of this quality of life stuff because actually, so let's get into the dis the ongoing dispute because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's 11 or 12 uh, unions that re overall represent the uh, freight rail workers and the Presidential Emergency Board, as I talked about before, has stepped in and has been kind of mediating this dispute between the unions and the, the bosses for a long time and has kind of come up with a compromise agreement that actually does, it does give the unions a lot in terms of like, uh, uh, like pay increases and also back pay uh, and also, you know, guarantees of bonuses. In other words, a lot of money, right? A lot of money on the table, yeah. which usually is enough to kind of buy off a union, right? Be like, okay, fine. Like we'll give you a uh, standard of living uh, adjusted, you know, pay raises. And we'll also backdate them for the last two years since uh, the last contract freeze in 2019. So, you know, you and, you know, all of your members will be getting a really big payday. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Um, but the, the union and in their statement, uh, particularly the, the two unions I mentioned up front that are kind of standing out against this, um, Smart TD and uh, BLET, are, you know, 
called out the presidential emergency board for being like you made like you misfired from the very beginning because money is not the only thing we care about what we care about is the fact and they say this constantly in a statement that uh jeremy read as the cold open but it's this thing about you know to the you know, members are, are, you know, our union members are being terminated for getting sick, for attending routine medical visits, for doing all these things. You also just talked about, Justin, around what ultimately boiled down to, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're giving us back pay, if you're uh, increasing our pay, what matters is that the turnover uh, and the rate of termination of these workers is so high um, for really, uh, uh, really wild stuff like attending, you know, hospital and things like that. And and it really boils down to what. But what does it matter if you pay us more if we can't live long enough to spend it? Yeah, it's it, it it's it's a difficult situation to be in um you know because as much as biden's been trying to be good on labor this has completely missed the mark um you know this is uh, and and the other issue is that if you wanted to fix these issues you kind of have to completely restructure the industry which um i don't know that our current uh administration is willing to do um <laughs> that you because just everything's been worked in a corner so hard that like uh, the way you run the railroad now requires people to be on call at all these insane hours. And unless you were willing to do something like, I don't know, hire more people, run more trains, um, there's no solution here. Um, other than, I, I mean, you know, there's no long-term solution. I, I've, I've, I'm kind of pessimistic about this strike, uh, you know, accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. These these grievances are legitimate and need to be addressed one way or another, and I think they will be in some way, but it's going to be it's going to be an interesting couple days. <laughs> yeah. So what does it look like? You know, I want to get into I mean, the fact that like, you know, the, the freight rail uh, industries are running like record profits right now. And none of that's an accident. Like all of this is on the back of labor and on the back of uh, the, you know, what we've alluded to and we'll get into more um, later in the episode, right? The um, precision scheduled railroading, like this, you know, uh, th this kind of uh, managerial method, like, you know, but yeah, I mean, what you're saying is exactly right, where it's like, ultimately, there's something structural going on here, right? And it, yes. and, and, and the, the bosses and the, you know, capital, the owners are not feeling any of the heat at all. They are making more money than they've ever made, essentially. Um, and all of that is, again, like, by design, it's, you know, in the uh, kind of immediate or, or, you know, somewhat immediate sense, it's, it's the culmination of the last 30 years or so of like, kind of managerial revolutions in terms of how these uh, freights operate. But let's also take a bit of a, a long durée before we talk about the future, right? Like what would uh, this strike, what would it look like if this strike happened? You know, what would our, what would the, the country's kind of logistical networks look like and possible scenarios? I think we really, you know, have to go back to the very beginning because these things are so, these issues are so structural and so baked into the very uh, design of this industry. So, uh, Justin, why don't you give us a brief history of the railroad? 
So I, I will preface this by saying I think historical analysis is very important with the railroad because you can't understand a lot of these decisions without uh, looking back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, right? Um, now, if we want to go, we want to really start early. Okay, so in 19, 1830, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was the first modern railroad, right? Uh, opens 15th of September, 1830. The, on opening day, uh, they run over a member of parliament. Um, <laughs> strong. He was a Tory. Strong start. Strong start. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Railroads have always been socialist. <laughs> yes. Uh, so sort of uh, in the United States in particular, you know, we, 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 there's a couple of lines that go from the uh, East Coast to sort of either the Ohio River or the Great Lakes. It's pretty slope going in the antebellum uh, period. Um, you know, and this is your standard, you know, Victorian stuff, terrible working conditions, expendable immigrant labor, you know, financed by land grants, uh, you know, railroads, uh, get, get a whole bunch of land for free from the government that includes the transcontinental route railroad. And of course, obviously, you know, they're doing native American genocide and stuff like that. Right. And this is, this is, this is, uh, all the high school history stuff. Most of these early railroads are built very rapidly, very badly, um, they don't make money, but they do make money in land grants. Some of them are scams just outright. Some of them are undercapitalized. Uh, in the late 1860s, you have this railroad boom. They build shitloads in like almost no time, and none of them make money, and it crashes the economy. That leads to the long depression and the panic of 1873. Uh, 1877, you have the Great Railroad Strike. That's where we almost had a real general strike in America. That's also where the strikes were so violent in Pittsburgh. No one, no one would stop them in Pittsburgh. The, the, the strikes led to riots. They burned down all the rail lines in the town. And then they shipped in the Philadelphia Division and the National Guard. That's when Philadelphia declared war on Pittsburgh. Um, this, the Sheets Wawa divide goes further than you think. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, what else is of note here? I, World War I, we briefly nationalized the railroads. That was because they were operating so inefficiently that uh, we couldn't send stuff over to uh, Europe. Um, this was partially uh, the fault of the Port of New York. But uh, anyway, uh, that was probably when the railroads were most efficiently run was in World War I when they all acted as one system. Um, obviously that went away. Um, <laughs> say, so, say what you will about war, but at least the, the trains ran on time. Am I right? Trains Justin? Ran on, yeah, that's true. It's true. <laughs> 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 so, uh, interwar period, you have sort of upgrades. You, you, you introduce something called the interstate commerce commission. They, they regulate, uh, freight railroad rates, um, which was a really big issue because, um, I, I guess a real, Something to say here is that railroad competition has always been fake. It's never existed. Um, mm -hmm. But when it did exist, it was destructive competition where one railroad would cut rates, the other one would cut rates, the other one would cut rates. And what eventually happened was they would both bleed each other dry and then the trains just stopped running until the two owners got together and said, all right, we'll raise the rates again. Uh, th this is a system that does not work well with competition to start out with. No, and I mean, in, in part, I mean, let, let's talk about that for a minute, because, right, like, in part, it's because for the railroad to work, it requires a high level of standardization yes. and things like that. And so you need a lot of coordination. Otherwise, you get... Uh, 
uh, uh, the case of Australia and the middle gauge muddle, um, where in, in, you know, when Australia was building its railroads, like every state decided it wanted to, to have its own standard, its own gauge, and, and buy uh, rail cars from its own preferred country of, uh, of import, which meant that um, for a very long time in Australia, when rail cars ran over state lines, they would have to, uh, you would have to change to a different uh, car uh, to, for that gauge. And then when they eventually decided to rip everything up and make it all standardized, it cost a bunch of fucking money and took a very long time. Oh yeah, and that's uh, that's also a, a strong reason why the North won the Civil War. Is the uh, North was all standard gauge, and the South was uh, go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> there you Thirty-five go. different R- gauges. Rail- yeah, <laughs> railroads once again proving that they try their damnedest to be on the right side of history, but capital tr- continues to bat them the other way. This is true. This is true. Um, so, uh, sort of uh, in the interwar period, we we get a more regulated railroad system. Um, the regulators sort of work hand in hand with the management to start out with, um, but it does prevent destructive competition and turn it into like this faux notion of competition. Um, all the railroads at this point, they're looking to merge. They want to do some big mergers at this point. No one can agree on what to do, um, so it, it doesn't happen. The Interstate Commerce Commission is impaneled to merge the railroads by government force, and then they just don't do that. Um, you know, we, we have some advances in technology. We get electric trains. We get diesel trains. Um, after World War II is when I think the modern history starts, um, or the modern history of the railroad that's, like, relevant here, right? Um so we have the first mega merger that creates Penn Central. That's a merger of the Pennsylvania and the uh, New York Central Railroad. They, um, you know, this becomes like the largest corporation in history. It goes bankrupt within like five, six years. Um, and it's just a general disaster. Um, you know, and from that, we also get 1967, the post office cancels all the mail contracts. This uh, mail was mostly carried on passenger trains. So all those passenger trains that were barely making profit are now making huge loss. Uh, so they try and get rid of all of them. Um, you know, and of course, we hand off the responsibility of bringing, keeping passenger service going to none other than Richard Milhouse Nixon. You know, uh, what happens there is like, okay, we're going to create a nationalized corporation to run the passenger trains, right? And they hand off the planning to the McKinsey and Company. Right. Um, And so McKinsey and company comes back with a plan for a national rail network and the Nixon administration looks at it and says, cut that by two thirds. Um, And that's the modern M-Track system. (laughs) (laughs) So McKinsey and McKinsey and co is such a timeless evil. They like, like, like they, you know, people are like, oh, it's the Illuminati. Oh, it's the, the Freemasons. It's the Templars. No, it was McKinsey and co there from the origins of the universe onwards, actually pull it, actually, you know, in the background doing, doing the hard yards of the real like hustle and grind evil. Very, you know, they don't often do like the big flashy stuff. They're more of a lunch pill, you know, nine to five player when it comes to uh, evil in the world. I just like how the Nixon administration was like, uh, that's not evil enough. (laughs) 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 We have our brief experiment with nationalized freight rail. That was Conrail. This was another McKinsey and company story, but 
I think their second CEO shoved them all, all the McKinsey guys into a basement and then fired them a month later. Um, after this, we have this wonderful thing called he the He set staggers. them on fire, folks. Literally <laughs> fired them. The only yeah. fate that McKinsey and Co. deserves. <laughs> After this, we have this, this, uh, the Staggers Rail Act of 1980. This is a major deregulatory bill for the railroads, um, and this allows them to really pick and choose what kind of traffic they want, what kind of, uh, uh, what, what kind of uh, railroad they want to run. Um, this is where you can really start uh, saying, okay, we have our common carrier obligation, theoretically, but um, maybe we can start cutting our less profitable lines. Um, and this was this was a dark time for railroading. Like a lot of railroads were not making money, but once you once they were deregulated, they could say, "Okay, we have a a ten mile branch line that goes to like the town lumberyard and like a uh, I don't know a a, a a small chemical plant or something." And they could say, "Well, this is making money, but it's not making that much money. Let's just abandon this shit, right?" <laughs> hmm. Um. So you start really pruning the network. You do something called demarketing, which is where you know the railroad was seeking out all kinds of traffic before, and they were obligated to. Now you're like, I don't know if I want to haul livestock anymore, for instance, or I don't know right. if I want to haul something else that's expensive. I mean, um, so yeah, like low always- low margins. It's expensive to haul, yeah. um, and so I have a question though. So when they start cutting out some of these intermediary stops and turn, you know, uh, in the kind of beginning stages of trimming the fat, right? And this yeah. uh, this is going to be a logic that plays out to uh, to to a conclusion where there's no more fat to trim, and so you start trimming the muscle and bone. But uh, yeah. uh, so when you start trimming the fat in this way, like cutting out intermediary stops, for example, only going from you know major hub to major hub. What picks up the slack there, right? It, like, it, is it the case that that suddenly becomes like trucking routes? You know, so you, you need to take things from a major hub like Chicago out into the hinterlands that might have previously been served by a, a closer rail stop, but now they're no longer serving it. So is it, it what, yeah, like, you know, stuff still needs to get places, although I'm sure yeah. that meant that a lot of stuff simply did not get places. But what? how does that decision to trim the fat in that way, like what kind of effects does that have on the logistical network? All of this traffic is seeded to trucks, like almost all of it, um, except for some of the high value stuff, which goes on airplanes. And And there's so much at this point, like a contraction mindset, an austerity mindset. Um, it's uh, it, to the point where, so in the seventies, this is a big key thing for what's happening now. Actually, the Burlington Northern Railroad makes the decision: okay, we discovered shitloads of coal in Wyoming. We're going to build a hundred and three mile main line through the Powder River Basin, right? And this is like the most obvious investment in history. And there's a shareholder revolt over it. Um, they're like, you cannot invest in anything uh, ever. Um, and they managed to get it built, and it was the most profitable single investment any railroad ever made. It was so unpopular with shareholders who were like, we need to cut, 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 cut. And culminates in sort of what happens in the 90s, uh, which is... Enter a man, uh, E. Hunter Harrison, uh, who I would I would call the Lenin of precision scheduled railroading. 
Um, so <laughs> I, I wish this was, well, there you, there's your problem and that we had a PowerPoint. Cause like <laughs> folks look up this dude, E Hunter Harrison, and he looks exactly like what you think he does. Like he looks like a railroad baron. So E Hunter Harrison's, uh, he, he worked his way up through the ranks to be the CEO of the Illinois central, um, which had a main line that was basically a dead straight line from Chicago to new Orleans. Um, and he has this idea, all right, we have lots of these inefficiencies in the railroad system, right? Where uh, to move a car from, I don't know, Boston to, let's say, Chicago, you know, you, you classify the car in a yard at Boston. You send it on a train to Selkirk in New York. You, you, you run it through another yard. Each time this takes like a couple days, um, you, you know, you, you might classify it again at like Enola in Pennsylvania or Fort Worth or somewhere. His idea is what if we run more direct trains on schedules now? Uh, uh, and, and this is like, this is the precision scheduled part of precision scheduled railroading. Um, and you would think if you run trains on schedules, you wouldn't have the sort of insane attendance policies that you need now, but, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so, uh, Hunter Harrison, he implements this at Illinois central. It makes a lot of money. He implements this at Canadian national. Once they buy out the Illinois central, they make a whole bunch of money. Um, all of a sudden a lot of these other railroads are like, gee, we should, we should try this shit too. Uh, but they kind of implemented in a much different way. Um, and this is, uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. You know, you have, there was a big strike in 1992, um, which has a lot of parallels to this one. That's when the railway labor act was passed, which essentially gave Congress the authority to end a railroad strike. Um, and that's what we're sort of looking at right now. That's what the, mm-hmm. that's what we're facing down. Um, uh, we had these huge traffic increases in the uh, the the late '90s, uh, especially from the Powder River Basin, because EPA emissions regulations went into effect, which destroyed the Appalachian coal industry and made Powder River Basin coal the coal to get. And all those are modern mines with like that are highly mechanized, so almost no one works there. Um, <laughs> law of unintended consequences strikes again. Uh, <laughs> You're back in crude oil. You had a big hiring spree in 2004. All those guys are about to age out and get their pensions. Um, and we have new technology that rolls in that makes longer trains possible. This is a, a big thing right now is that, you know, it used to be have four locomotives at the head of the train, uh, pulling like 75 cars. Now you have a locomotive at the head of the train. You got one in the middle. You got one in the back. It's all controlled by two guys up front. And then you have 275 cars. Um, and this is, uh, this, this is made in some ways it's increased capacity. In some ways it's made it much, much worse, especially if you're trying to run a passenger train, for instance. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's truly mind boggling. I mean, this is, this is also how we get uh snow piercer, right? <laughs> the the uh, train yeah. that circles the world, but, um, it, except it, longer. Like, <laughs> yeah, no except <laughs> way, way longer, way, way longer. Uh, that's also that's so you can multiply the number of class divisions, obviously. Um, and so the, I think this will be. I want to put a pin in this for, or I want to rather put a flag in this for listeners because we'll get to this shortly. But 
this idea of running longer trains as a um, as an efficiency thing, you know, of course, the spokespeople for the the big freight comp the big uh, class one, you know, railroad companies, you know, there's there's uh, seven of these uh, class one railroad companies, which account oh, for uh, going down to six as of a couple of weeks from now. <laughs> okay. So, so the yeah. con- further consolidation, there's six of yes. them, which account for uh, 94% of the, uh, of, of all the freight rail industries revenue goes to <laughs> these uh, six companies. And so one of the things that they love saying, because as we'll get to like, you know, one of the, uh, the, the very foreseeable consequences of this, uh, uh, precision scheduled railroading is um, a, a, a huge lack of safety um, and a huge increase in uh, derailments. But yeah. rather than, you know, with, obviously if you think you're running like 275 car long trains, that isn't that, doesn't that mean that like, well, that that's going to make things like a lot, you know, a lot more unsafe, right? Like, you know, you, you're running trains a lot faster, you're running them much longer, which means they're way heavier, which means there's also a lot more opportunity for in this complex system kind of cascading effects. But no, you would be wrong because according to the spokespeople of all these uh, 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 freight rail industries, um, it actually makes things safer. You know, it, it, uh, it's actually a win-win where every single metric improves measurably and there's no trade-offs necessary. Isn't that wonderful? Absolutely not. There's never been a problem caused by a monster train that I can think of. No, I, I mean, this is uh, um, the, the, the monster train issue, I, I think, is uh, it's a big one. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to separate the, the actual implementation of precision scheduled railroading from the the enabling technology for the monster train it used to be if you had let's say i have a couple locomotives at the front of the train i can control those all with two guys but if i wanted to put a locomotive at the end of the train or one in the middle that would require a second crew that technology did not exist now now we have we have figured out through radio how to control locomotives in the middle of the train and all of a sudden you had all these railroad lines that are designed for like 75 car trains or hundred car trains or less. Now, now they're trying to cram these 275 car trains down there. Um, precision scheduled railroading as it's been implemented. Uh, there's a lot less concern about stuff like how the train is made up. So like, uh, let's say I have, I have a hundred car train, right? And I got a bunch of light cars in the front. I got a bunch of heavy cars in the back and I'm going down a grade right and i have you know you're going you're going downhill you go through a sharp corner all those heavy cars in the back put so much force on the light cars in the front they may just flip over right and this this is happening more and more that's what norfolk southern did on horseshoe curve a couple times now since they've adopted uh precision scheduled railroading is they've <laughs> just they've just put the put a a huge freight train on the ground in front of god and everyone on the virtual rail fan cam and everything um <laughs> and 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 it's uh and just left it sitting there for like months and months and months as well um but so it's like uh you know it's like when you put your your enemy's heads on a pike except it's you're putting your own head on a pike and demonstrating it to the world yeah Yeah. two m-track trains go by there daily and they're just passengers looking at that (laughs) (laughs) you're like damn aren't you glad you're not freight that could be you (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because it really boils down to, I mean, like, 
you know, obviously it's right there in the name, right? Precision scheduled railroading. Yeah. It's right there in the, the origins of it in austerity, yeah. you know, it's origins in the nineties around kind of cost cutting around turning the industry into a money-making, uh, com- you know, a money-making sector, a highly profitable one. Uh, yeah. you know, you, we've mentioned E Hunt, E, E Hunter Harrison. I'll just, you know, we've mentioned, we've mentioned Harrison, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of the father of this who went from company to company, uh, implementing this, right? Like there was multiple yes. cases where like, uh, uh, what, like vulture capitalist and like activist investors would take over a railroad company and install Harrison at the front to be like, turn this baby into a money-making machine. And he did, he did by cutting the fat uh, to the point where he was, you know, shaving off the bone and the, and, and butchering the muscle of the company because, you know, it's like Marx said, right? Marx described capital as money in motion. That is what capital boils down to. Um, and that is essentially Harrison's philosophy for freight rail is, you know, he he was said to, uh, his most hated thing was quote unquote underutilized assets. And anytime a train was not in motion, carrying something somewhere, that was a underutilized asset. Uh, anytime uh, a worker was not doing something directly contributing to the movement of a train and cargo from place to place, that's an underutilized asset. And so what that means is that things like uh, inspecting trains, suddenly uh, something that was never timed started being timed. And then yes. that time started getting lower and lower and lower. You shared with uh, with us, Justin, um, a really fantastic article from Vice Motherboard. Shout out to Ed, uh, <laughs> and um, but by Aaron Gordon and Vice Motherboard. It's a really long article all about the derailment epidemic uh, in freight rail right now. And it talks a lot about uh, the kind of precision scheduled railroading as a, uh, a direct cause of the fact that there's been like 314 derailments over the, in a calendar year of freight rail, right? Like this stuff is happening yeah. constantly. Um, and I, I want to quote- It's bad enough I've seen one happen in person. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And Jeremy, you said that there one happened near you like very recently. Yeah, there was, uh, it was in 2017. It was an Amtrak that- uh, derailed uh going over a bridge over i-5 like south of where i live uh and i was actually on the interstate um probably well, that was a bad one <laughs> five miles behind the bridge uh going south towards olympia and uh, i was stuck on the interstate i want to say i was stuck on the interstate for three hours um before we were able to get off the interstate and that that accident i if i remember correctly i think like three people died and they were all on the same uh car and they were all part of like a advocacy group for people taking trains. That that would that that specific accident, I think you could really contribute to. Um, we were cost cutting when building a right of way um, that you had an eighty mile an hour section, and then a thirty mile an hour curve, and then mm-hmm. an eighty mile an hour section. Now that was uh, was that like I think it was like December eighth, like two thousand seventeen. I want to say 
I might might not have it right, but yeah, it was. Uh, I think I think I remember reading. Like I got really invested in reading about it because it was just it was mind boggling that you know like a train derailment. Like I mean, because you know, Jason and I grew up in a town where we had a train tracks that basically ran by almost every house we lived at growing mm-hmm. up. Like hearing trains in the background, like the the horns, and then just the the ambient sound of train noises like the scraping of metal mm-hmm. and just the locomotives going by was like a daily thing and it never experienced anything like that growing up but there was never trains that never derailed near us because they was you know they went so slow also it would make you late for work if you had to cross a set of train tracks to get from point a to right, point b yeah. and you had to sit there and wait for a 200 car train but yeah that accident was pretty it was pretty awful because i just remember like there were literal train cars all over the interstate and not only people on the trains were injured, but there was like multiple vehicles that got damaged. And luckily, nobody died in a vehicle. I mean, there's three people that died in that one train car was just a, a freak incident, I think, on its own. Yeah. The fact that like, you know, we, we never really heard about do. De- I mean, also, we don't hear about derailments now either. And I think that's a major issue as well, even though they are happening constantly. Uh, little did I know, you know, but now I'm cursed uh, once right. again, and then therefore cursing all of our listeners with the knowledge of a, uh, a, a yet another ongoing disaster, which is leading to a uh, all but imminent uh, catastrophe uh, in terms of de- uh, train derailment. And really, I mean, I think it, I don't think it's unfair. If anything, I think it's the sober material thing to do is to lay a lot of that blame on uh, precision scheduled railroading. And I want to quote real quick from this vice motherboard article that really kind of lays out like what interests are being uh you know uh valued here and preferenced over all the others so uh aaron gordon writes quote proponents of precision scheduled railroading say it, it is it is about leveraging modern technology to improve efficiency but those who work on the railroads every day say it is little more than a euphemism for draconian cost cutting in order to achieve an arbitrary metric that pleases shareholders that metric called an operating ratio must get below 60% which means only 60% of every dollar earned goes towards actually running the railroads. The rest can go towards executive pay and shareholder dividends. So that right there, that is the culprit, is the operating ratio. The idea that you could or... let alone should uh, run a uh, something as dangerous, as simultaneously dangerous, uh, prone to catastrophe, but also crucial and critical to uh, the economy. The idea that you could run something like that at a uh, uh, at a point where only sixty per, a minimum or no a maximum of sixty percent goes towards actually running that thing, and the other forty percent goes towards profits. That I mean, it's it's really quite insane an idea that you could do that. Let alone that is actually how these railroads are being run. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the cult of the operating ratio has been a, a thing for a long time. It used to be, I, I would say, uh, certainly during like the era of like steam locomotives, you were uh, a good operation. A good operating ratio was like eighty percent, right, or you know something like that. I, I especially now when you can invest in a company that like I don't know, there's one guy in a basement who makes a fart app and it makes a billion dollars a day. Um, a 60% operating ratio is a very bad rate of return 
for like any investor. I think that's one of the reasons why the railroads have gone so hard into it. Um, now, I, I, I do have to, I have to do my friend Uday justice and say there are aspects of the theory of precision scheduled railroading which are good. Number one being running the trains on schedules, <laughs> which is one thing that they have completely abandoned. That's one of the reasons why we have these insane attendance policies. Nothing runs on schedules anymore. Every train, they just sort of wait until they have 200 cars and send it out of the yard then. It's really bad for everyone. That's why you get called up at one in the morning. It's because they they want minimum yard time, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they want maximum rail time. They don't even get that, though. That's the other thing. Is like, uh, there's so much congestion now, but it does um, have slightly less crew time if you have, I don't know, two... 250 car trains and one of them's held up for like several hours as opposed to running four 75 car trains or something. Um, you do, you do have fewer crew hours under this paradigm at the expense of everything spends longer in transit. The shippers are mad. Cust- you know, the customers are mad. You can't get an Amtrak train through because all the trains are held up. Um, but it, it, in the end, the balance sheet says it worked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in the end, you get things like, uh, so according to federal regulations, every train car needs to be expected, inspected thoroughly uh, every 3,500 miles. Uh, this Vice Motherboard article is, uh, has a quote from a railroad uh, worker who said that they, uh, they, they saw a car that hadn't been inspected for 90,000 miles. That sounds about right. I mean, just a couple months ago, there was a huge coal train derailment on, you know, the Northeast corridor, you know, uh, the, our, our only quote unquote high speed rail corridor. It happened right outside of a place called, um, whatchamacallit, right by the, the Susquehanna river. I, I forget what it's called. Perryville, Maryland, excuse me. Um, I should know that offhand. Um, so they, they just put like 40 coal cars on the ground on a 150 mile an hour railroad, 135 mile an hour railroad, excuse me. And, and, and it, I don't know why this wasn't a national news story, because if there had been any trains anywhere nearby, you would have killed like 200 people. Uh, but these derailments, I guess, are so common now that I, I don't know. That's not even a news story. <laughs> It is well that they, that this is not national news because it's also the fact that like you know the rail cards transport all of the most dangerous things right like yes. you know uh, highly flammable uh, gases liquid petroleum uh, highly we, we poisonous of, gases we get a lot of molten sulfur through Philly yeah molten <laughs> sulfur molten asphalt uh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, that, well, that's another big one. Um, I don't and, know. And I don't know what the nastiest one I can think of is. That I have to. I have to uh, uh, don't get so much nuclear waste through here, but that that's probably one of the safer ones, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, because that's being run by the military. I'm sure hydrogen fluoride. I mean, it's playing uh, fast and loose. I mean, that's what capital does, though. You know, yeah. capital is going to do what capital does. Um, but it is. But but there also. 
there seems to be no none of the countervailing or, or counterweights or anything like that pushing against these tendencies, whether it is, you know, federal regulation, which for whatever reason uh, is just, I, I don't know, I guess they're completely, you know, uh, hamstrung or something like unable to actually enforce laws on the books. And so nobody follows them. The media doesn't cover any of this for whatever reason, whether it's because the the industry has extremely good uh, PR and comms teams, or if there's some kind of, you know, just a, a, a kind of, ooh, you know, that's not a really nice story to cover. This idea that there's hundreds of derailments constantly, many of which are carrying uh, extremely uh, either flammable or poisonous uh, substances. Some, some kind um, of horrible chemical you wouldn't tell your children about. Um. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it's the fact that like nobody wants that running through their backyard. So I, I wonder if there's a bit of a NIMBY aspect as well, where it's more of a kind of like, you know, don't ask, don't tell. That's some of the secrecy there is that like, you know, we don't know until after the fact that, you know, this highly dangerous chemical was running, you know, on the on the rail line, like, you know, yeah. a mile from your house or something like that. And it really does seem like, and there is um the 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 title of this motherboard vice article is alluding to Boeing, essentially quoting a worker that's saying it's going to end up like Boeing. You know, so essentially saying that again, like the a major disaster that kills you know, hundreds or thousands of people levels a town is only, uh, you know, it's it's inevitable at this rate. It's not something yep. that is a risk, but it's a, a an imminent uh, eventuality. I will say they did already level one town, uh, Lac Magantique in uh, Quebec. Um, but hey, that's Quebec. Yeah, that's Quebec. Okay, it's just uh, that's the French. We Some don't good care fishing about in Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean the extent to which the 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 industry has like worked itself into a quarter. I, I well, the industry is um, stuck in a rut in the sense of like, well, what is the alternative? And 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 it there's you made some historical decisions to the point where it would be very very difficult to turn around the railroad industry at this point to wind up in a a more pro worker situation this, this is one of the uh, one of the things i was going to say about precision scheduled railroading is like the idea of running trains on schedules is very good uh because they'd be more predictable and workers would have consistent schedules right but uh, uh the reverse has occurred because technology has allowed for the longest dumbest trains possible um you know if you um if you you, you, you need to really go out of, uh, uh, get out of the mindset of cost cutting in order to make this work. And, and there's, it would be really hard to do that, uh, as long as you have private railroads that are expected to make a profit, because what's required right now is huge investment in infrastructure. You have to be running more and shorter trains. You have to do a whole bunch of stuff in order to like give workers quality of life in order to give, in order to have punctual shipments in order to have um anything good anything that's not a decline and and it's just not possible under the system of private railroad ownership right now it's um this this industry is has been slowly uh killing itself for at least 30 years now probably i don't know maybe, maybe you could say anywhere up to like a 30 years to 190 years 
Um, <laughs> it's always been bad. I'm not going to say it's ever been good. It has been better than it has is now is right now. One of the things I think is a, a, a going to be interesting to see when the strike happens because I think there will be some strike action. Is is Congress just going to force them all back to work with a bad contract, or is something else going to happen? Because no one, the the fundamental issue cannot be resolved without changing the way that we want run railroads in the United States. Um, <laughs> there's hmm. there's not really a solution here that doesn't involve like you know a complete revolution. I don't know. I, I, there's part of me that's like optimistic. Like, I don't know. Maybe Biden will just nationalize the whole shebang. All right, let's go. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> dark Brandon, baby. Dark yeah, Brandon. Dark, yeah, let's dark, go. Dark Brand, let's go. Dark Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. It is also interesting because that is one of the potential scenarios that could play out is that yeah. Congress either enforces another 30-day cooling off period, as it's called, which essentially just means a 30-day a snooze on a strike to say, yeah. like, you know, you guys sit down and come to an agreement or, you know, accept the terms that have already been laid out by the Presidential Emergency Board. Or Congress could, as you said, um, force them to go to work because of that uh, law that they enacted 30 years ago during the the last major uh, rail strike of 92. And so Congress could just say like, no, you have to go back to work, which, you know, is possible um, for them to happen. It is also interesting to see who wants that to happen and who doesn't because, yes. you know, in looking at the, the, you know, media and some of the uh, statements being put out about this, a lot of the industries, particularly the um, the agricultural, uh, the the big agricultural uh, industry trade group that kind of represents, you know, agriculture as an interest group, um, mm -hmm. you know, they are very vocal about the need for Congress to intercede, right? Intervene into this Congress, save us, please, make the workers go to work, make the the trains run on time because they need that, right? A lot of other manufacturers that rely on these on freight to transport their their commodities are being are like Congress, please do something. However, the two main groups that don't want Congress to do anything is the 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 unions and the uh, the freight industry. They both want Congress to stay out of it for different reasons. Um, you know, I think. I think the unions fear that they'll get a, a raw end of the deal, uh, which I think is accurate, that they would yeah. probably get fucked over in any kind of deal that Congress imposes on them. Uh, and I think the industry wants Congress to stay out because while they would probably benefit from whatever Congress did in the, in the short term, I think they are worried about any kind of governmental uh, intrusion that might look like a slippery slope towards the government telling them what to do, whether that's uh, just regulation or something bigger and badder, like, you know, some kind of quasi-nationalization, if not full-on nationalization. I mean, one of, one of the things which... Uh if this strike happens, and I think something something's going to happen, is this is not going to be resolved amicably. Uh, if there's a strike, uh, you genuinely will not have food on the shelves in like a week. Um, so that's that's a whole situation right there. And who gets and uh, who catches the blame for that? I wonder. Yeah, that, that's what I would wonder too. I mean, uh, but these railroad workers—they have been 
so that the working conditions have been so bad for so long. Uh, all right, this is an anecdote, a secondhand anecdote. I know a guy who knows a guy who was in the Union Pacific uh, steam program, right? That meant you were the highest tier engineer. They trained you to run the steam locomotive that they have. It's the biggest one, right? And then and then you can drive the steam locomotive. You can wave at all the kids. You can blow the whistle. It's great. It's a this is a real prestige position. <laughs> um, and after some of the 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 recent you know attendance policy changes, um, he was like, "Yeah, this isn't worth it." <laughs> he wanted to become a personal trainer at a gym. <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like it's it it it's it's like you know a lot of people who work for the railroad really like trains. So this is also like a passion job, and like hmm. if 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 uh, if you know, there's there's it's so bad that I there's got to be a labor action because it's that bad. But if I I think if even you if you force people back to work, there's going to be some kind of wildcat action. Um, you know, I, I, I do think there's going to be like a, some kind of mealy mouthed, uh, extension of the, the cooling off period, but that's, I don't think the cooling off period is having a cooling off effect. No, it, it seems to just be prolonging yeah. the inevitable of some, some kind of yeah. tension break happening. And there's definitely like some rumblings of something. Something is going to happen. Norfolk Southern has started to reject uh, containers at inland ports. Um, M-Track has started canceling long distance trains already. Um, this this thing's gonna something's gonna happen. I don't know what. <laughs> it's another unfortunate thing that Ed couldn't make it to this episode because I believe he plans to uh, ride. F- from uh, the Amtrak across from the West Coast to the East Coast uh, later this month. He's going to do a three-day trip, um, I think, from San Francisco to New York or something like that. So, you know, well, that's passenger, of course. That's not freight, yeah. but... Yeah, but uh, they're, they're uh, they, you know, if the, if the... They can't fit all the freight cars in the yards. So you're going to have, like freight trains just stopped on the main lines there's nothing you can't get around them because they're so long now that the passing sidings don't work anymore because they don't want to invest in infrastructure (laughs) yeah i mean they can't even invest in inspecting uh cars let alone invest in infrastructure (laughs) um and, and and I mean, we're seeing some of this already happening, and this is also in the statement that uh, Jeremy read as the as the cold open. But the way in which you know the the freight is uh, the freight rail industry is already starting to preemptively before a strike even happened, uh, yeah. you know, doing some stoppages, doing some uh, you know schedule changes, you know, running things differently. In other words, saying that like you know they they are choosing to as the uh the union statement puts it the railroads are using shippers consumers and the supply chain of our nation as pawns in an effort to get our unions to cave into their contract demands knowing that our members would never accept them our unions will not cave into these scare tactics and congress must not cave into what can only be described as corporate terrorism <laughs> i love the language of the statement but essentially it, what the industry is doing is acting as if the strike has already happened and kind of yes. giving uh, their customers 
uh, i.e. people who run you know, cargo on the freight lines, and also consumers as a whole, a kind of taste of what's to come as a way of saying, you, this is you. This is really shitty. You don't like this. Well, you know, this is what this is going to be. This, but even worse, and much longer if the unions get what they want. You know, the, the railroads are, of course, obviously an incredibly ethical business. Otherwise, um, but the uh, oh my god, I I do like the corporate terrorism term. I will say that, <laughs> that that's that's something that that they have been doing for a long time. But uh, that's a nice that's a nice modern spin on it. I will say that, and it's, the fact that they released the statement on nine eleven is 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 so perfect. <laughs> that's really good. That's really good. Yeah. We're, we're running up on time. I don't want to keep you for too much longer. We, we won't do a Well, There's Your Problem patented four-hour episode. Um, <laughs> but we've, mentioned, we've talked a little bit about it, and this is absolutely one of the big scare, like scare tactics, but it's also not just a scare tactic because it is a reality. You know, supply yeah. chain is on everybody's, uh, you know, every, the front of everybody's mind right now because of the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, over the last two and a half years, uh, what we've seen caused, you know, in terms of like things not being on the shelves. Right. And like this would yeah. do that as you, you know, as you said earlier, like this would actually do that. Like within a week, we would see like bare shelves and stuff. Like, what do you think? What is the scenario here? If there is a strike, if there is like a total shutdown, um, you know, what does the scenario look like in terms of the supply chain? But, you know, how long do you think in, in your professional uh, guessing and opinion, yeah. like how long would something like that run? You know, how long would it last? Like what? Yeah. Like what, what does that actually look like if we fast forward a week from now uh, or two weeks from now and the strike happened, you know, on the 16th? So in 1992, which is our best approximation, it lasted two days, and then Congress intervened. That was under H.W. Bush, of course, um, and they uh, they completely re-regulated like railway labor just immediately, just like they had that legislation done in two days, and they passed it. I don't know if we would do that now because everyone's mad at each other much more. Um, I don't know what would happen. I, all I could say is it, it's going to get ugly. <laughs> It's going to be, it's going to be a whole, whole shebang right there. It's going to be, it's, it's, it, I go, go to the grocery store and grab some rice and beans. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think the, the, the rail unions and particularly the two big ones that we've been talking about that are really the ones leading this kind of, uh, you know, this labor dispute right now. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see them as being particularly militant unions, right? Like, like they are very much, you know, they they have their members' interests at heart. They are very much striking and pushing for things like quality of life uh, improvements and stuff. I don't think that they have on their own minds an idea of like, like you know, complete structural change of the industry, let alone something yeah. like a militant uh, takeover by labor of the industry. Although it is interesting as well that like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 
communization theorist and uh, and and the, you know people people like us on TMK people like me in particular uh, you know routinely point out you know the choke points right of capitalism yes. and that always being logistical choke points right like you know this is how we uh, this is how we actually put into praxis like revolutionary militant action against capitalism is to you know seize the ports seize the train yards uh you know all of that like this is the real the circuits of capital are the lifeblood of capital it's money in motion it's a shark if it stops it dies like you know i, I don't know what what are your thoughts on 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 that in terms of like the both the militant potential but also the perhaps not so militant uh act like praxis uh, of this kind of strike I mean, BLET is historically a very conservative union. They aren't backing down. I I, I feel like the, if they if if there's a time for them to exercise their labor power in a militant way, that this is when it's going to happen. Um, in like you know, because they they do have the power to bring not just management but the entire country to its knees. Um, it's not like you can train new engineers or conductors like within like a couple weeks. It's not like you can bring in the national guard to drive the trains. I mean, there are, there are, there are, there is a military railroad, but they got like 300 guys, I think at most, you need more than that. Um, <laughs> so this is, uh, uh, if it's going to happen, this is, this is probably when it's going to happen. <laughs> Do you think it's going to happen? Do I think it's I, hard question? Hard question. Um, I feel like I'm going to I'm going to wind up with egg on my face. Um <laughs> if I right, say I won't anything. force your hand since uh <laughs> there's a good chance that people will be listening to this episode after <laughs> some <Yeah>. strike happens <laughs> uh if a strike does happen. So I won't I won't force your hand there. Um yeah. instead I'll I'll lob you the softball. Do you want it to happen? Oh hell yeah. <laughs> Nothing else That's it'll, right. it'll be it'll be funny. And We'll have we'll have uh, the the whole infrastructure of the national collapse. That means I won't have to look at Twitter for a couple of days. You know, <laughs> oh, sweet release. <laughs> how much how much uh, rice and beans you got stocked up? Uh, not much. I got to actually go out and do that. Um, All right, we'll gotta, do that gotta, before gotta, we gotta, release gotta, this episode. Yeah, <laughs> got to practice what I preach. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then we'll i'll meet you at the original social media uh the 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 campfire with a can of beans yes <laughs> <laughs> all right well justin you got something else to tell us about all right so what, one of the things which uh especially locomotive engineers have been dealing with this is not like an explicit like union uh, uh demand or something but for a long time there have been several fuel economy systems. They call them fuel economy, fuel economy management, stuff like that. Uh, some locomotives are now equipped with um, these, 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 these computers on them. They, they, they put computers on the trains, and it was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. Um, <laughs> the idea is that you, there's two systems. One, called, one is called trip optimizer. I want to say that's the one from General Electric. The other one is called leader. That's the one from General Motors. Those are the two main manufacturers. We're the two main manufacturers of locomotives because we destroyed the locomotive industry over the past 15 years. That's a whole different story. You can't buy a locomotive anymore. It's impossible. Um, so the idea is, all right, I am driving my train 
but I can't drive my train. The computer drives my train for me, and I monitor the computer, which is taking an already boring job and making it more boring because all I'm really doing is hitting the alerter over and over again. Now, the other thing, the alerter is the thing that's like this, it's a dead man handle, right? You, you know, if, if you don't hit it every once in a while, the train goes into emergency braking. So one of these systems, the trip optimizer, I believe it is, uh, someone manually programs in, you know, the route that the train is going on. Um, and then it automatically controls the train and you can take over at any time, but you're supposed to use it for most of the time because it's supposed to be better at driving the train than you are. A lot of people are really pissed off about it. The other one, the leader system, uses machine learning to drive the train. Um, the klaxon should be ringing because, folks, we hate it when machines be learning on this, uh, on this podcast. We forced a bot to play 9,000 hours of Microsoft Train Simulator. Let's see how it does on the real Marias Pass. <laughs> and this shit... What, what they should have done is they should have uh, trained the bot with all the uh, the Twitch streamers who do, like, you know, uh, long-haul trucking and, and, and trains and, and train simulators. So, so it's... Ac- or actually, let's cut out the middleman. It's Potemkin AI, baby. It's actually a Twitch streamer uh, driving <laughs> your train. <laughs> and it, this shit is... Uh, th- this shit is, like, something you're, you're, you're required to use, at least to a certain extent. And it, it puts you in like a weird situation where it's like, okay, I have a weirdly configured train, maybe a badly set up one. And it's like, all right, on the one hand, I can take over from the computer and drive the train properly and then get disciplined for it. Or on the other hand, I can let the computer go and derail the train, possibly uh, injure myself and destroy property or kill people, but that's a mechanical failure. I won't get disciplined for that one. <laughs> a beautiful set of incentives there. Yes. Uh, and, and, and let me guess, more often than not, people are just like, uh, well, uh, machine Jesus, take the will. Yes, exactly. Let me, let me, let me hand it off to uh, the, the Microsoft Train Simulator AI. Let's see what happens. Um, Worst case scenario, uh, you can always leave the cab. Um, you know, jumping from a moving train, proven way to survive an accident. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and that's information you can use, folks. Uh, yeah. I mean, th- this is so, this is really like, I, I mean, I'm waiting for the Tesla like DLC model of doing this, right? Where it's like, uh, we forgot to buy the uh, the self the the fully automated driverless uh, mode DLC, and so now nobody's driving the train. I mean, these the, the, it's it's like there's not even like a camera on the train or anything. This is just like this thing is going blind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is also and they've been uh, doing it for like f- four years now. <laughs> And this is supposed to be best case scenario for driverless, uh, uh, you know, vehicles is because it's literally on rails. Like yes. that's what all of the autonomous car people say is that like, well, you know, like 
we can't do like we still have to do this on rails you know it's because it's a uh, uh, all of the things that come all the uncertainties and and stuff that comes with actually driving in the real world but if this was all on rails um then it would be perfectly fine but as we see this is being used on this, rails this is, and it is, is actually not perfectly on rails fine. And it does not it does not work very well <laughs> Uh, it also it also drives the train really slow. That's well, like that one of the big to, complaints I've heard before. <laughs> that seems to go against capital's interest there. So I mean, it, uh, it, it, fuel economy. <laughs> oh right, right. Yeah. And, I mean, and and in this economy, you know, thanks, thanks, Joe Brandon. Thank uh, you, Joe Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> We've all seen the stickers at the pumps, folks. Uh, yes. <laughs> so it it is interesting where there's like these counter the, these kind of uh, uh, you know different values and preferences that seem to be in direct competition with each other. Because obviously, automation in these cases, as in a lot of cases, is never about progress. It's about uh, you know de-skilling and eliminating labor, right? And, so it's and, like and, and disciplining know, labor. Yeah, discipline yeah, labor. Yeah, yeah. You show them the kiosk, or you yeah. show them the uh, you know the the machine learning uh, you know Twitch simulator driver, and say if you don't shape up, that's you know they're going to take your job. It's routinely capital shooting itself in the foot by trying to discipline and exploit labor while at the same time, uh, like doing so in these really haphazard ways that, I mean, I'm sure some bean counter has this, has come up with all the cost benefit models that show that, you know, the fact that 341 derailments happened in, you know, 2019, you know, the cost of cleaning that up, the cost of lost cargo, uh, lost, you know, trains, all the, you know, infrastructure damage, all of that, you know, uh, is all set. Yeah, people killed, right? But you know, the the you know, all of that stuff, right? Like is offset by the uh the increased uh you know, uh, you know trains on rail moving stuff. Um but like at some point, like surely these cost benefit analyses are 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 not accurate. I mean, I just it doesn't make I don't see how the numbers work out. I you know, it's it it, it it's been said for a long time and I mean since like the 1800s. Um, and it still applies today. The ideal railroad owns zero track and runs zero trains. Um, <laughs> and that, that's what we're going for. That's, that's what we're going to go for. That, that is the goal. Well, you know, and, and yeah, that's, that's ultimately the goal. And on the, along the way there, I did the ideal railroad also has zero owners. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go for the anarchist railroad. Let's see how that works. <laughs> <laughs> This has been uh, really great. So happy to have you on, Justin. Um, you know, and and a, a really important topic that you know I was very pleased to uh, have the opportunity to learn a lot more about and 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 pay more attention to myself. Um, you know, of course, everybody should if you don't already go watch because you can watch. Well, there's your problem. It is a it's podcast. True but it is also a YouTube show with PowerPoint. It's a podcast with PowerPoint and it's, it's fantastic. I love it. Uh, all about engineering disasters. Um, you know, for people who aren't familiar, uh, it is also part of the 
uh, Trash Future Extended Universe um, because the lovely Alice Caldwell Kelly is one of the co-hosts on Well, There's Your Problem. Um, so if you love TMK, if you love TF, then you will absolutely love Well, There's Your Problem. Justin, where can people find you? And is there anything else you would like to plug before we go? Um, I'm on the Twitter as who underscore shot underscore JGR. Um, I have a podcast, which was just, uh, lavishly plugged. Yeah. That, 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 that's all I got. That's, that's everything I got. Um, you're, you're on Patreon uh, too with that podcast. So, you know, folks are on Patreon. Yes. Chuck, chuck a dollar or two or five over there as well. Um, trying, trying to avoid the nightmare scenario that all my friends have where you're on multiple podcasts. <laughs> it, uh, I don't get it. I don't get how people have the time or how energy or ability more than to one do podcast. it. Yeah, yeah. I you know, and I know some of these people with multiple podcasts also have real jobs, uh, even though they yeah. don't talk about them on those podcasts. Which makes me think that you know maybe this is one of those things where. You, you work for only 15 hours in your 40-hour-a-week job, but then your real job is spending 25, 30 hours a week podcasting. That's, maybe, that's the real communist dream. That's what Marx was talking about. Maybe I just have abnormally low productivity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, you have the correct amount of productivity. Doing one this podcast is, is, is already true. too yeah. productive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this was great. And you, that dear listeners, great. can find us... Also at patreon.com slash this machine kills for an additional premium episode every single week, every single week. Uh, so find us over there on the premium feed um, or we'll catch you next time in the free one. Uh, until then, later. later.